0: It's always great when you get things like that, where there's athletes from all over the world who are creating this moment, it's not just kind of one little section or, you know, one nation or, or something like that. Mesdames et Messieurs.
1: The greatest
2: festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games,
0: is about to begin. This is gonna be close. <laughs>
2: And welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am hanging in there. How about you? Oh, same. Like, <laughs> we had a nice hot weekend. Now it's getting cold and it's fall, fall, fall. But you know what fall means this year?
1: That, that I'm going to injure myself? No, it means oh. it's the 20th anniversary of Sydney 2000. It's so funny that you say that, because I was having a conversation with some people over the weekend, and they said, oh, they had an Olympics in September, and then we had a whole discussion about Northern and Southern Hemisphere, and oh, yes, it was reversed and how cold it was in Rio.
2: Yeah, it's always interesting to think about that. And then think about the reverse of what they must think every time there's a summer Olympics during their winter.
1: Right. It's very confusing. But I have been enjoying all the Sydney nostalgia. Oh, my goodness. That was such a good games.
2: Oh, it was. It was so, so good. So much fun. They did such a great job putting it on. So many great athletic feats. Oh, it was so good. So good. They should be proud. It's it's really one. Well, uh, as Juan Antonio Samaranch said, the greatest games
1: ever. It is definitely... Arguably the greatest games ever. It was just so many legendary kind of things happened. And the way they ran the games, nobody was complaining.
2: Exactly. And coming off of Atlanta,
1: that was a big deal. Where lots of people were complaining and tragedy, sort of that aspect to it as well.
2: But yes, it is the 20th anniversary of Sydney 2000. So today we are looking back at arguably the best day at those amazing games. September 25th, 2000 has been called the greatest day in Olympic track and field history. With victories by Kathy Freeman and Michael Johnson were just the beginning. We spoke with longtime Olympics editor at NBC Sports, Nick Zaccardi, about what made Magic Monday legendary. Take a listen.
1: Nick, thank you so much for joining us. So we wanted to talk on the 20th anniversary of Sydney 2000, and I had not heard the term Magic Monday before, referring to the track and field events of September 25th. So let's just kind of go through some of the big things that happened on that specific night.
0: Well, I feel like the favorite for me and probably most most people who look at it from that night would be the women's 400-meters which might have, I think, actually been the first of, of this series of track and field events that happened that made it Magic Monday chronologically. Of course, it was probably the most anticipated event of the entire games across all sports because of the presence of Kathy Freeman. We remember she lit the she lit the cauldron of the opening ceremony 10 days earlier. And this was her biggest event, the 400 meters. She was the world champion, the favorites. And of course, being of Aboriginal descent, she was trying to become, I believe, the first um Australian of Aboriginal descent to win an individual Olympic gold medal and of course it was in track and field event at this huge stadium 110,000 people so it was it was a pretty big deal
1: so she had lit the cauldron and I remember watching this and she had been passed the torch by all these other Australian champions and the pressure mm-hmm. that she was under i was I was worried about her <laughs> as a fan saying oh my goodness What if she doesn't win? So I can't imagine the pressure that she must have felt.
0: Yeah, well, it's funny. The the Sydney Morning Herald, the newspaper there in Sydney, the main one, the day of the final, their front page headline was the race of our lives with a picture of Kathy Freeman's face on it. Now, can you imagine? I don't know if Kathy saw that newspaper when she got up in the morning. But can you imagine being an athlete and seeing that on the day of the biggest uh, sporting event in your athletic career where you pretty much have to perform at your best for what, 48 seconds, 49 seconds. It's going to essentially define the rest of your life. It, it's hard, hard to believe. And it's hard to think of any other athlete in Olympic history that had that kind of pressure, not only being you know, the home nation star, but the college lighter. And then obviously uh, having all the attention on you um, because of, you know, ancestral heritage and what you mean in a broader context outside of sport for your country. It's just so incredible. And if you watch the race, when she finishes and she wins and she's kind of crouching over and you can can see the, I don't know if it's relief or just pressure kind of falling off of her shoulders, you can see it in her eyes and her face. And it's just overwhelming.
2: Right. And she like sat on the sidelines for a little while or in the infield for a little while and took off her shoes and, and took some time to just take it all in before asking for uh, what they were calling on the australian tv a lap of honor
0: right well she didn't have that much time because they were setting up uh, the, the men's 400 meters happened immediately after that which is funny because michael johnson who you know the big favorite ended up winning that race he broke with protocol and he went out to the track or at least right next to the track to watch the women's 400 meter final right before his race because he knew that it was going to be just you know this iconic moment and he wanted to be there to see it rather than Whatever his normal last-minute preparations would have been in in a ready room or in the warm-up track, um, kind of farther below. And then, of course, the victory lap was a big deal because she carried both the Australian flag and and the Aboriginal flag with her, which I'm sure many people anticipated her doing. But obviously, that that also carried with it a lot of sentimental and 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 became you know pictures that were you know relayed across Australia and it was a big deal.
1: So talk a little bit about that. In that, obviously, as Americans, we're not as familiar with. The Australian Aboriginal, it's very similar to Native Americans' experience, you know, being taken from their land. But it seems in Australia like it's even more intense or the the prejudice continues in a way that we don't seem to see in the United States.
0: Yeah, well, Kathy told her story pretty well. She did some interviews, um, in, in a particular TV special with a, the ABC network in Australia leading up to the 20th anniversary, where she kind of went through... What the Aboriginal people had gone through, and specifically her family members, her grandparents had gone through, being you know Australia's Indigenous people and how they were persecuted, and and how that sort of motivated her, and you kind of got her perspective when it came to later on down the line. Um, it's actually a big deal in the Commonwealth Games. I believe it was in 1991, maybe '95. Um, she carried an Aboriginal flag on a victory lap and was heavily criticized by um high standing people within uh within Australia or within Australia's Olympic movement, which is just crazy crazy to think about that sort of thing happening in the nineteen mean, nineties. And as, as Americans we think about John Carlos, Tommy Smith and in nineteen sixty eight and as them essentially getting kicked out of, of the Olympic village for, for what they did. And when you think about it as, as Americans, you know, up until recently you think that stuff is way in the past, but, you know, in Australia, it was such a big deal. It's still throughout the nineties and even leading up to the 2000 Olympics. And obviously now in America, we're dealing with this reckoning where a lot of people are realizing now that that racism is still, you know, still a very big deal. And, you know, maybe they had thought it was something that was back in the sixties and seventies, but again, yeah, Australia, this was a major, major point outside of sports. So for the country's biggest sporting icon during the Olympics to be this symbol just carried so much.
1: So the hits just came on coming that night. So delayed for several minutes was the men's 400 because of the Australian crowd just losing their minds off of Kathy Freeman's win. And then here comes Michael Johnson repeating in the men's 400, which had never happened Mm. in Olympic history before.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because that turned out to be what the last individual race of Michael Johnson's olympic career and and really i mean he didn't compete in any world championships after that either so that was pretty much the the end of his career on the major stage and he didn't run the 200 meters at those olympics you know he would have run later in the games in 200 meters if he had made the team in it but he wasn't able to defend in his, his olympic title in that event because he pulled up with an injury at the olympic trials in a big showdown with maurice green and of course, in Atlanta, the 200-meter was, was more famous with Michael than the 400 because he broke the 200-meter broke the world record in that race. So it's kind of interesting how that all played out. But, yeah, Michael, who during the Atlanta games had you know, was the home host nation big track and field star, now four years later is seeing Kathy right in front of him as the home nation big track and field star in a little different sense, but there are a lot of similarities there, and he, he knew Kathy too as well. So it's kind of interesting that he went up and followed her right then because it does, that doesn't happen anymore. The men's and women's 400-meter finals, I believe, are now on different days at the Olympics. So it's interesting, a, a moment that we'll never see anything like that again unless they change the schedule and, and things align. But, yeah, that, that is pretty crazy.
1: So that day in track and field, or athletics as it's referred to, there were nine finals. Is that – that seems like a
0: lot. That's a good good point. Um it does, it does seem like a lot, uh, but you have to remember, though, they did – well, for instance, the, very, the next major event that happened chronologically was the women's pole vault, which was a new event. Um, so this is the track and field programs, you know, expanding, you know, at these games and the later games, adding more events. And that's where we see Stacey Gervila, uh, who had a great story um, uh, coming from, uh, what, a farm, something with, with cattle or something like that. Like, she, you know, had this great, you know, Olympic athlete story that NBC told – and she goes out and she wins the first Olympic women's pole ball competition. I'm sure growing up thinking that she wouldn't be able to compete at the Olympics if she did the pole ball because it was only for men at the time. And the silver medalist was a Russian-born Australian, Tatyana Grigorieva. So all sorts of interesting things happening. And, of course, that is happening while Kathy and Michael are racing. They're jumping at their heights, and that eventually ends after Michael Johnson's race. So that's a nice little segue there.
1: Yeah, I was watching some of the videos today, and as I was watching the 10,000 – there are people jumping in the background. So all of okay. these things are kind of, you know, cause there were several field events and, and I've never been to a, a track and field meet on this scale so that everything is kind of happening at once. How does this crowd even handle it? I mean, they all must've just been losing their minds <laughs> trying to keep up.
0: Yeah. Well, I wasn't at the Sydney games, mm-hmm. but um, I have covered track and field the last couple of Olympics and, uh, there's another reporter who's done this a lot longer than i have I, i'm not sure if it's him or, or somebody else i'm not gonna say his name but they called it you know they call track and field a three ring circus. you know when you're covering track and field there's whatever's going on a the track there's usually multiple field events going on whether or not it's a throws or a jump or something like that so you always kind of have to be monitoring multiple things that are going on at once it's different from almost any other sport there is and a story can pop out from any one of those three tents uh, at, at a given time and this night was sort of one of those things where you had something happen in the pole vault in the triple jump and three different races in the track four four different races on the track really and it's so it, it's pretty cool because there's different people of the state different people in different sections of the stadium are closely monitoring different things right if you're an australian obviously you're watching kathy if you're an american you might be focused on the pole vault. So, you know, Europeans are looking at, you know, Jonathan Edwards and the triple jump. And then obviously the distance races, is you have the East Africans. So it's, it's always great when you get things like that, where there's athletes from all over the world who are creating this moment, not just kind of one little section or, you know, one nation or, or something like that.
1: So you mentioned the distance race, the men's 10,000 had the most insane last hundred meters. Mm-hmm. Yeah so I think that I've ever yeah. seen in that kind of distance that's so that last 100 meters you've got two race, racers just neck and neck
0: Yeah Hailey Gebrselassie and Paul Chirgat and they had, they had, had a, a already a very developed rivalry between those two from uh, from from world championships and things like that so it was actually a very anticipated race you, oftentimes at least the general Olympics fan who maybe focuses on a hundred doesn't think of the 10,000. It's something that's incredibly interesting, but believe me, this was a very anticipated event. And yeah, like you said, 25 laps of the track, the race takes half hour, essentially. And it comes down to the last, last kick sprints and last hundred meters. And it's nine, one hundredths of a second, highly gathered out kicking Paul Turgot. And just incredible, and that's kind of the way it was with their rivalry. It was highly always he always won. Um, so unfortunately for Turgot, that was probably as close as he got. But this kind of cemented Kebre Selassie, similar to like a Michael Johnson, as kind of this king because he had already been an Olympic champion before, and he just he does it again and he does it under the biggest pressure possible. And so that was one of the special moments in Olympic distance running that maybe gets forgotten a little bit about um, among you know general olympic fans because again this is kathy freeman and michael johnson's night but this was this was a very big deal to a lot of people as well
1: and gabriel selassie is trailing the entire race and then all of mm. a sudden he just comes you're like what is going on what is happening
0: yeah it's just it's a fantastic yeah yeah you get a lot of distance races i mean we see like mo farah in last recent olympics was kind of that was his thing you just sit and kick that sort of thing. If you if you know you got the best kick, there's there's no point in in leading it all if you don't have to, right? You don't want to burn any energy that you're going to use for the very end. So that was I'm sure that's what he was thinking, and Turgot was probably hopefully trying to kick the kick out of Gevorsolasi by by pushing the pace, but he you know obviously didn't do it enough.
1: I want to go back to the pole vault just because mm-hmm. it is kind of ridiculous and I, I promise I won't go off on the tirade, that 2000 is the first time we have women's pole vault. But yeah. how was that received at the time in the athletics community?
0: That's a good question. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you here, I was only, what, 14 years old during the 2000 Olympics. <laughs> so I, I don't know exactly for sure, but I, I will say this, it's, it's funny because there's that and then the women's 3000 meter steeplechase wasn't added until the following Olympics in 2004. So that wasn't like the last, a, a last event to kind of finally get some gender equality and even now in recent years there's been a little bit of a storyline of like if and when they're going to add a women's decathlon which would re- probably require them to phase out the heptathlon from the you know olympics and world championships at some point and, and you know are they going to do that should they do that for for gender equality or do you Female multi-event athletes who are coming up and learning the heptathlon—do they maybe not not want to do that? So that's another interesting thing. But yeah, it's crazy, and we see it in, in a lot of different sports. There are still Olympic sports that are not gender equal, um, <laughs> yeah, and it <laughs> don't get us. That's why I said. Don't get us started. <laughs> it's
2: because our uteruses yeah. will just lie all over the field. That's that's why. Come on.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the old argument with the marathon, right? That that women women couldn't couldn't run twenty six miles, and now it's female, especially in the United States, female marathoning has exploded. And, and the America, America has some of the best female marathoners in the world. But it's, yeah, we're, they're still working. I mean, the winter games, you guys see ski jumping just got added for women. Nordic combined is something that they're trying to develop and get enough countries to have strong female competitors and get that into the Olympics, because right now it's only a male event. So,
2: I wanted to talk a little bit about the triple jump, because uh, one of the things I was reading was that Somebody called Jonathan Edwards like the night before and said, oh, hey, when you jump, like right around your first jump, it's going to be when Kathy Freeman runs. And Mm. he kind of let that he he went. It could have you could have gone one of two ways. He could have gotten very uptight, but he kind of let that boy him into his competition.
0: That's an interesting point. I haven't really thought of that too much. I wonder if Jonathan, because this was his fourth Olympics he didn't have a gold medal yet even though he already had you know the world record from several years before he must have been feeling a lot of pressure knowing this was probably going to be his last chance but then you see kathy and michael johnson go before you on the track maybe maybe that takes some of the pressure off knowing that everybody in the stadium is probably watching those people and and not watching you as much and and also maybe like during the competition you can distract yourself by watching what's going on in the track, right? Watching these historic moments and maybe that takes your mind off it. I'm I'm not sure I haven't spoken to Jonathan about that, but it it was obviously a very unique experience of all of his major championships uh, to be in the stadium that night. And I wonder, I wonder if that ended up helping him.
1: So now you wrote an article kind of detailing all these different events and all the, the excitement from that night. Do you remember it yourself?
0: I remember a little bit. So I was, I was a high school freshman, and I remember this was back. I mean, this was back in. I taped those Olympics on VHS tapes, and I. So I remember, I, I remember making sure that I got it in there in time to be able to get the Kathy Freeman race because that was going to be the big thing, and then and and the Michael Johnson race too. And honestly, I don't. I do remember Stacey Javila. I don't remember Jonathan Edwards as much or the men's 10,000 as much, or even Maria Mutola and the 800 meters. Maybe that's because those weren't as big a deal to me at, at the time at my age. Maybe it's also because, I mean, it's gotta be very hard for NBC to fit all of those things in the primetime broadcast as well. So we have to spend so much time on what Kathy and Michael did. Obviously it's possible that it would have been later or something like that. It was, you know, it was a school night. <laughs> I don't know if I was up that late to so watch all of it. So but I do, I do still have the VHS tapes. So that's, that's always kind of funny going back yeah. and looking at some of the commercials and things like that.
1: Yeah. I would think, you know, Kathy Freeman, Michael Johnson, Stacy Dragila, and everything else you sort of saw the last lap or the last throw. And that was about oh, it. Oh Yeah.
0: Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Cause you can't, you can't show an entire triple jump competition on prime time. Cause you know, it, it, it takes so long and same thing with it. Today. You can't show a half hour, a full half hour race in prime time. There just isn't enough time for it. So that's, those are good points too. Um, I do remember actually that day was also the day that uh, Vince Carter had his famous dunk over the French center, Frederick Weiss. that was earlier in the day. So it's, it's interesting because every year on this day on social media, the Vince Carter dunk is shared endlessly um, because it's such this highlight moment in a very popular sport in America with a very popular athlete and Vince Carter. And people, okay, like there's very little attention span for people with the Olympics and the Olympics aren't happening, right? The general sports fan. So they see the Vince Carter dunk and boom, that's like, you know, maybe that's the only two seconds of the day they think about the Olympics. But actually that day was a far more significant day than just the, the three second highlight clip of Vince Carter dunking over a seven foot guy. Actually, all of this stuff happened in track and field. It was much more monumental. It's kind of funny how that works. So
1: obviously you've watched a lot of Olympics since then. Very closely, you know, on a professional level. Where would you mm-hmm. put Sydney in the pantheon of games?
0: Well, again, like, there are people who are much more experienced who would probably be able to do this better than I would. But um, my memories of watching the Olympics, you know, go back only to, to to really, as far as summer games to Atlanta, really. And as far as the whole package. Sydney was very high, um, and if you remember, the IOC president at the time called them the best games ever at the very end. And that part of that was because of the sporting achievements, but also because Sydney, they just put on incredible games. But that was that was up there. I still have to I have to put Beijing number one as far as if we're just looking at sporting achievements, because that was the pinnacle for Michael Phelps and for Usain Bolt, who are the two most famous Olympians in, in at least modern history. And of course that also had the redeemed team and some other things as well. So I think I'd have to put Beijing number one, but it's Sydney's right up there. It it might be as far as, you know, in my, my lifetime, it it could be number two. London was pretty good. Atlanta had a lot of things going for it. I don't really remember much of Barcelona, but everybody I talked to said that it was great and it obviously had some great things too. So Sydney could be number two. It's kind of sneaky up there. People don't think of it too much. It didn't have a dream team. It didn't, Phelps was only competed in one event as a 15 year old bolt wasn't there yet. You know, it was kind of this, it was kind of this, the games before we got the, you know, the Phelps bolt run that we got. So people don't maybe think of it as much, but it really had a whole lot in a lot of different sports.
2: Now uh, London had it super Saturday. How would you compare magic Monday to super Saturday?
0: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, obviously there's a lot of parallels there and said co, you know, the, the British middle distance runner who became the leader of the organizing committee for the London Games. He, when he was talking about what happened on Super Saturday, he recalled what happened on Magic Monday, and he said basically, Super Saturday is the greatest night that we've had in Olympics, I mean, Olympic track and field since Magic Monday, and maybe it. And he said that it maybe it edged Magic Monday a little bit. Now, of course, he's saying that as a Brit, so you know that's going to come with a little bit of, of you know bias, of course. But yeah. It's, super saturday you had with and this was super saturday was a little bit different because everything happened so quickly it was boom 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 between um jessica ennis and the heptathlon and greg weatherford in the long jump and and mo farah uh in the 10k they happened very um right in succession and it was all host nation athletes as opposed to magic monday being athletes from around the world different continents doing so well so i think you got some differences there so if you're Somebody who's really into the host nation doing something special in that sort of environment, I mean, obviously Magic Monday is going to be really high for you. But as far as an overall, I, I would go with Magic Monday.
1: Yeah, Lord Coe might have a little bit of a bias to the six medals that the UK yeah. picked up on on Super Saturday in London. Yeah, yeah, just just a little bit.
2: Do you have any interesting stories about discus or the one hundred and ten meter hurdles for men, or the women's five thousand or eight uh, hundred?
0: Well, the women's eight hundred was was another race that you could throw in there with those moments that we've already talked about as being very special, because you had Maria Mutola of Mozambique, kind of similar to Jonathan Edwards, this athlete who had been on the scene for a, a long time, so dominant in, in the nineteen nineties, was a world champion. Um, But she hadn't won an Olympic gold medal yet. And by this time, she was, uh, what, 27, 28 years old. So um, this was looking like possibly her last chance to do it. And she gets the gold medal, really big deal. And so that's, you know, very similar. Uh, And again, it kind of helps round out this night because we've got an Australian, we've got a couple of Americans, and then we've got, you know, Kevin Slossi and Turgot, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And then Marie Mutola is from Mozambique, you know, this country that we don't think of Mozambique when we think about great, um, great sporting nation. So it just adds a little bit extra to the, you know, diverse nature of this night. So that was, that was a really big one, too. The other events, honestly, I, I don't recall too much off the top of my head of what, what made them special. The men's 110 meter hurdles, you had the New Garcia of Cuba. Cuba won that. Um, that was an event that was typically dominated by Americans and, and Europeans. So that was an interesting thing to happen, but he didn't get a particularly fast time. He wasn't as decorated as, as some of the other people in the event. Like, you know, he had won Olympic medal before. He wasn't a world champion. Um, so I don't remember too much about that. Uh, so you, you got me on those, the discus, the the women's five. The women's five had a good rivalry between Gabrielle Zabo and, and, and Sonia O'Sullivan of Ireland. But I mean, as far as distance races, the, 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 the men's 10 was, 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 you know, that was, that was the, the marquee deal. So
1: you did get a medal for Ireland in athletics, which was not, you know, yeah. we don't see too
0: many of those. Yeah, and that was a very close race, too. That, that came down to just a couple of tenths, tenths of a second very close.
1: I did watch that race before we got on the phone, and what surprised me was that Zabo was able to win wearing all that jewelry. Like that alone, I thought would have slowed her down. She had on these giant earrings and this enormous necklace,
0: and I'm like, if oh, yeah? you had
1: taken all that off, Gabrielle, it wouldn't have even been close.
0: Yeah, it's funny too because you don't think distance running, you don't think Romania and Ireland. Like that's just it's it's funny how that worked. It became a, a European duel. So that's you know, it's crazy.
1: So the other thing that not related to when we were talking about other countries, so also happening that night, that just strikes me as interesting was there were gymnastics finals and this was the last gymnastics where we really saw the dominance of the romanians and the russians once Mm. 2004 comes they start kind of you know they want they kind of swept the board on some of these events and we don't see that anymore and i kind of miss it (laughs)
0: yeah a little bit yeah yeah yeah. Romania in particular really had this precipitous fall. I mean, well, in 2004, they still won the team title uh, and they won some individual gold medals too. So I guess 2004 was really the end for Romania, but Russia, I mean, after the breakup of the Soviet union, Russia kind of had this slow, slow and steady decline. And I mean, Svetlana, Horkina helped keep them at near the to top there in 2000, especially in 2004, helped them uh, stay in the medal hunt. But yeah, that was really, it. and of course, I mean, 2000 gymnastics, it's, I mean, that's all about the, the controversies of what happened with you know, the between the all around gold medalists getting stripped and then and then the uh or also in the all around, the uh, with the fault being being too low and then having to refault and stuff like that. So that was I mean, that was pretty nuts too. Yeah. Um, but that was there was just some great personalities and names in the international gymnastics at those Olympics. is what I remember too. It's between Orkina and then Alexei Nemov on the men's side. I mean, it, it was pretty cool to have and then i mean yang Wei, who won the gold medal in 2008 he was really young there and he got he got silver in the all-around so it was kind of interesting to see a lot of these a lot of these cool interesting names there even though the americans both on the men and women's side didn't really didn't really do much but if you loved personalities and in international gymnastics it was good olympics at least
1: and they were all competing in individual event finals that night so Horkina mm-hmm. got her medal sure. and okay yeah you you don't want to cross horkina
0: <laughs> Certainly not on uneven bars. Yeah. She will um, take you that, out. <laughs> is that the uneven bars night? Yeah. Uh, I was beam and floor. Be- oh, beam and floor. Okay. Then that would have been Zemmelajkova um, mm-hmm. on floor. Yeah. Yeah. Her teammate. And then, yeah, Hortina wouldn't have won either of those Yeah. She um, was. But she got yeah. she for it. So yeah. Yeah. Her thing was bars, right? She always won the bars. Title. Yeah.
1: She always um, won the bars, but she did compete in the beam, I think. She medaled as well. Okay. Okay. So, yes, yeah, she was competing that night. But, man, you she, just give her all the medals so she doesn't stare at you.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's still a lightning rod in the Damascus community. She still says a lot of interesting things that aren't uh, takes that a lot of people like. Uh, so she's still creating headlines, what, 20 years later, which is, you know, which is interesting.
1: As is circle backing to Kathy Freeman. She's been doing interviews left and right and good on her. She seems to have yeah. held up under that that spotlight
0: very well. Yeah, well, it's funny because I really hadn't heard much from Kathy Freeman. I want to say the last time I really thought about her was back in 2012. She was supposed to run the New York City Marathon and then Superstorm Sandy came and the marathon got canceled like a day or two before. I imagine she was probably in New York City um, because to fly from Australia, you would have had to have gotten in days ahead of time, right, um, to uh, to adjust, um, and of course, they ended up not running it. I think she ended up running a marathon somewhere else at some point, but then, yeah, since then, I really hadn't heard much from her for the last eight years or so, and then when this came up, you know, yeah, she's done some TV interviews and, and things like that, so, and it seems like Australia really made a big deal this 20th anniversary. They did some primetime TV specials and then the Kathy special that ran on their ABC network. Um, I mean, part of that, I think, is because a lot of sports were shut down. There was no Olympics this year, so newspapers and TV networks still have space to fill. So it's like, okay, well, let's, let's showcase these, these Olympics that were so important for our country. So it was nice to see Kathy and some of the other athletes get, get, some, get some more attention on that because it's it, Kathy was such a big deal 20 years ago, and especially with Olympic athletes, it seems like in America, they're such a big deal for these week or two, and then people forget about them. I don't know what it was like in Australia. I imagine Kathy Freeman walks down the street; people still recognize her, but she doesn't get talked about a lot.
2: Speaking of no Olympics this year, how has it been for you, work-wise, and finding stories? Or mm-hmm. no trip to Tokyo this year?
0: Yeah, obviously, it's a lot different than you know what I thought it was going to be. It's funny; the last the last real event I covered was the Olympic marathon trials. And I distinctly remember the press conference afterwards, somebody asking the athletes a question about the coronavirus. And this is leap day, February 29th. And I was thinking when they asked that, I was like, well, what are the athletes going to say that? They, there's not really much they can say. It's out of their hands, that sort of thing. So they gave, you know, the answers you thought they would give. And then the press conference moved on. And then like everything in the next like two or three weeks, you know, changed. And I just think about that moment a lot, but there's still, you know, so there was a, there was maybe a what two or three month stretch where there's almost no sports. And that's when, um, the fact when you cover the Olympics, it's it can sometimes be more about the athlete stories and the personal stories than about the competition itself. Uh, so that's when you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, some of these stories that maybe I was, I was going to write leading up to the Olympics on these athletes and, and where they came from and what makes them unique. I'll just, I'll just write them anyway. I'm just going to write them a year before they compete in the Olympics. So that's, what I ended up doing did, you know, a lot of the athletes are still really open to talking, especially when they don't really have any competitions to get ready for. They've got some more time. So a lot of athletes are very gracious with their time. Did some profiles with some athletes, went back and did some flashback stories. Um, One of my favorite things I did was I spoke with Jenny Thompson, the swimmer from, from the nineties and two thousands, who became, became um, a doctor. And so she was right on the front lines of COVID. And so I was talking with her a little bit about that and how her, house or, medical center was in desperate need of ppe at the time and, and getting that word out so there's still a lot of different ways you know you can go about it and there's a lot of different athletes affected a lot of different ways and then obviously everything with george floyd brought up a whole other things to talk about and and really made me think about differently about my job and how you know how we handle you know what stories we're going to cover who we cover and what we cover and that sort of thing and through through lens through lens of race and I went and did some stories on, like, I found out who were the first black U.S. Winter Olympians because they were fairly recent. They were still alive. And then I contacted them and kind of got their story and their perspective, especially in this time. I thought it was it was rather timely. So there's even when there's no sports going on, there there are still there's still stories out there. They just might be harder to find or, or a little bit different.
2: Now, are you working on Beijing as well? Or I want to ask, are you worried about two Olympics six months apart
0: I won't say I'm worried um I it's funny because right now I feel like my job is very different than what it's going to be like what six months from now and, and like a year from now it's going to be like a whole lot but no yeah I, I'm not worried I mean we're NBC we obviously have a lot of you know, helping hands you know for if and when the, t- when the time comes where we, we need that I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's something that we haven't seen in the Olympic movement what since 1992, like two games back to back. I'm really excited. I just hope that we can get a, a good solid winter sports season of some sort this year for a lot of the sports, so these athletes can you know make a name for themselves before the lead up to the Winter Games. Because we're already seeing some sort of competitions canceled and postponed that we're gonna that we're going to happen in October, November, December. So for the athletes' sake, I really hope that we Get to see them compete at the highest level this winter and kind of establish people as, as medal contenders for Beijing, and then boom, like you know, March, April, we go right back into Olympic trials for summer sports. So it's gonna be, I think it's gonna be really cool. Like, it's like almost like wetting the appetite to have to wait through this whole year uh, for for you know, an Olympics next year. But then it's like we get, it's gonna be like a like a sport next in 2021. It's gonna be so like incredible. It's you know, it's gonna make the wait from 2022 to 2024 feel you what know, like, you know, interminable. But that's okay.
1: See, Jill and I are old enough to remember the once every four years, so that switch oh, yeah, in 90- have
0: someone with yeah,
1: yeah. So that switch in '92 is is very clear to us, and I still sometimes will be like, "Oh, we're back! Oh, yes, it's it's two years." I get so confused. So this is going to be more familiar, but terrifying now that we're in this business. Yeah,
0: for sure. It's, and back then, you know, different networks had the winter and summer games, so it was a lot different. And now NBC ha- has both of them, so it's it's something that a, a broadcaster has an experience for you, And we also have obviously other sports and Super Bowl and things like that. So it's going to be a really, really uh, b- busy year for us. And I think it's I think I think it's exciting just because it's sort of like a new frontier. But um, I mean, fingers crossed, the world is in you know a much better place. But uh, you know, it's nine ten months from now, and that the biggest that we focus on the competition, the athletes, because that is the most exciting thing happening, the most newsworthy thing happening. Hopefully the world is in a place where the the virus isn't something that's an overwhelming concern. You know, hopefully everything gets, gets better and as close to normal as possible. We can still have a closer to normal Olympics, but you know, we'll, we'll see what happens.
2: Thank you so much, Nick. You can follow Nick on Twitter and Instagram at nzacardi. That's N-Z-A-C-C-A-R-D-I. And read his many articles at olympics.nbcsports.com. While we were in our little pause that I put in for for editing purposes, I I just started remembering more and more great memories from Sydney. The Rulon Gardner defeating Alexander Karelin.
1: The gymnastics was amazing. Ian Thorpe was mm-hmm. the Olympics and all the Australian swimmers. And what I did not remember that all those things happened on one day. Yeah. And I think that's because we didn't see it all on one day. Oh, right. Because, because... we were
2: in a time shift and they would, that was when NBC would just hold stuff for, and show, yeah. And show it during primetime because there was no YouTube. There was no, the, the internet was, just, you know, having its first heyday.
1: Right. So when I was reading everything that happened that day, I was just, there's no possible way that could have all happened at once. And it, it did, it was just... Just oh. incredible.
2: Well, if you've got memories from Sydney 2000, please drop us a line at flamealivepod at gmail.com or drop it in our Facebook group. Join our group. We have a few Aussies in there, and they love to talk about those games. Rightly so. They should be very proud of those.
1: I love how the whole country claims a, I mean, Australia is a very large country, and Sydney is one little small city. But no matter where the Australians are from, they're like, yeah, Sydney was ours.
2: it's a large country with a small population
1: that doesn't matter you could still be like 10 (laughs) hours away from sydney but that's our games
2: All right. We'd like to say thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal donors who support the show. This show does have a lot of financial and time commitments that we need to cover, and your support helps keep our flame alive. We are currently working on a goal to get 75 patrons, which will allow us to have transcripts for the show, which we would love to provide to those who are hearing impaired and to those who don't have time to listen but still want to know about the show. So please support the show today at patreon.com slash flame alive. Pod, or go to flameLivepod.com and look for the PayPal and Patreon icons at the top of the page. Well, let's check in with our team now.
1: Welcome to Shukflastan.
2: This is a segment where we catch up with some of our previous guests who have become part of Team Keep the Flame Alive. That's T-K-F-L-A, or as we prefer to call it, Shukflastan. Let's start off with swimmer Mallory Comerford. She will not be swimming with the International Swimming League's Kelly Condors this year. It, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was going on because basically she got dropped from the roster. And I don't know if she's been picked up by anybody else or if she's just not going to swim with the league this fall, but we will uh, keep an eye on that. Our pair's figure skater, Megan Duhamel, was a guest judge on Battle of the Blades last year, but uh, which is a Canadian broadcasting company uh, show that pairs a hockey player with a figure skater, and they learn figure skating routines. And this year, she is back on the show to compete with Wojtek Wolski, Wolski a hockey player. So very excited her-
1: her actual Paris partner, Eric Radford, is also competing on the show. Oh,
2: so they're going against each other now.
1: They're going head to head. Oh, that's going to be exciting because they have female, female hockey, hockey players as well. Oh, going so with that, the oh, that's
2: exciting. Cast. That's exciting. I know the show is a, a big hit in Canada. If you watch it, let us know, and we'll be looking on the lookout for clips and, I and episodes.
1: Can't see any of these, I don't think, in the U.S.
2: Speaking of Canadians, our geologist Derek Long published his first academic paper on a new mineral species called Wind Mountainite. This paper also proposes a classification scheme for the uh, Peligorskite group, which to which Wind Mountainite belongs. You can read more in the July 2020 issue of the Canadian Mineralogist. Oh, congratulations, Derek. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. I'm so excited for him. Our biathlete Claire Egan was on the podium. Yes, there was a summer biathlon in Wiesbaden, Germany. It was called City Biathlon, and
1: she took third place. So it was roller skis and shooting. And the best part about this podium finish was they gave them, I think it is even larger than a magnum of champagne. Well, sparkling wine. It was, you know, we joke about cake pieces as big as your head. This was a bottle of sparkling wine, at least as big as her torso. Wow!
2: Huge. Wow. Well, we will have a link to the competition in the show notes if you would like to watch. The dulcet tones of Jason Bryant streamed his podcast, Matt Talk, online all day long on September 30th for International Podcast Day, to which it's we are taping on the 29th. So I intend to tune in for at least part of this tomorrow just to hear See some. how he holds up. That and just to have some dulcet tones in my life, man. It's true. A whole day. I'll just have that on. I know. It will make the world so much better. I know. Jason will be with me all day. Our uh, One of our book club authors, Andrew Marinus, will be one of the featured authors at the Southeastern Young Adult Book Festival, which will take place March 11th through 13th, 2021. And then he also posted on Twitter, if you are a a uh, librarian, teacher, or parent—if uh, your kids are stud- kids or students are studying the Holocaust, uh, reading and writing nonfiction—or you just need a guest speaker to help get you through the day—he is scheduling $200 virtual visits through the end of the school year. You can hit him up on Twitter, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. Very nice. Finishing off with a Canadian, Olia Abasolo of. Ovit- Bochynikova was featured in Sport Management Hub, talking about her role as education manager at the International Testing Agency. We will have a link to that
1: in the show notes. Period. Big active week for our I know. It's been so quiet because of the lack of competitions. But now things are, people are finding ways to make things happen, which is fantastic. Oh, oh, and...
2: John Harper Nelson has a new vlog up that talks that shows her first race back from retirement. Oh, it has
1: the actual video
2: of it? Yes. Well, it's a video from the stands, but you can see how she did and she hit a hurdle. So that was one of the things that that kept her back. But uh, it's the whole travel thing. And the race happened to be on her husband's birthday. So very exciting stuff from the Harper Nelson family. Uh, Let's move on to Tokyo 2020. We got some more details on those cuts proposed by the Coordination Commission and the Organizing Committee on what they will do to save some money. And uh, in, in the articles I read, I read a bunch of articles about that. It was just like, yeah, the money they're going to save is going to be a drop in the bucket. But to my mind, a drop in the bucket is better than no drops in the bucket
1: at all. And this is a pretty big bucket. So a few drops can make a big difference.
2: Exactly. So they proposed a list of like 52 items and those include no welcome ceremonies or souvenirs for arriving athletes. You know, when they get to the village and they always have a little ceremony, not doing that.
1: Their ceremony when they get to the village will be a COVID test.
2: (laughs) They'll do it as proper as possible. They are going to reduce the number of officials by 10 to 15%. So that's about 5,000 to 7,500 fewer than official. I know they expected 50,000 officials, but when you think about it, okay, uh, the big list of what an official is, so you've got the officials for the sporting events, you've got all of the NOC officials. I wonder if this also includes like entourages of physicians and therapy and other positions that we don't even know about that go with
1: them. Yeah, because they better not take away any of those officials in athletics who stand there with the jackets and the Panama hats. I don't want any reduction in Panama hats.
2: (laughs) So the idea behind reducing the number of officials, it also reduces the number of meals and transportation needs that they have. So that's gonna be actually kind of a big thing when you think about like 15,000 fewer meals a day, that can get pricey. Uh, they will cut venue decor and celebratory banners by 30 to 40 percent. And then they're going, the Kyoto News specifically said flashy displays such as use of smoke at, at events will be cut,
1: which, you know, honest to Pete, we
2: do not need flashy smoke displays.
1: Okay. So right now in the United States, we are having several wildfires out on the West Coast that were started, and I think it's still allegedly by a pyrotechnic display at a gender reveal party. So immediately, I think, flashy displays of pyrotechnics and use of smoke, probably a good idea to cut you don't want to burn down all of Tokyo. I would agree. So it is also a good safety choice.
2: Uh, There's going to be fewer shuttle buses. They're going to reduce lights, power generators, and x-ray machines for security at stadiums. Would not, I mean, we couldn't get the whole list, but I would not have put the x ray machines for security at stadiums as something that got out.
1: Well, I wonder if it's redundancy. Like, mm. will you be sort of like when you go to Disney World, you get x rayed at the entrance of the park, you don't get x rayed each time you go on a, a ride?
2: Right. So would you have gone, gotten x-rayed into like a bigger complex and then again going into the main venue? I don't know. Good question. Uh, we talked about this before. They may use public transportation for officials rather than shuttles. They, I love this one. This is one of my favorites. They're going to review the food and drink menus for the IOC members and officials. So possibly not. Maybe not
1: steak. Maybe chop steak. And maybe not five-star hotels, four-star hotels. It'll be interesting to see what that actually means. And we won't know until afterwards and the reports are done and reporters really get down into the weeds. But it'll be interesting. And looking at it for L.A. and, of course, Paris being next, do these reductions stick? Do these changes really to change the culture of the IOC, the way they really change the culture of the bidding process from back in the 90s? Or is it just when COVID is done, I want my steak dinner and my free watch? Good
2: question. I don't know. I, I do wonder. I think some of the IOC members understand that the budgets have to change, but we'll see. I, I would like an IOC member to go rogue with us. and. Talk to us about what actually goes down. Wouldn't that be fun? You know, just come oh, on. You know,
1: we can <gasps> maybe. We, well, we could. Oh, no.
2: Also for the IOC, uh, they've canceled the opening ceremony prior to the start of the IOC meeting that happens before the games start. And they are cutting back the lounge and food and beverage
1: services that the IOC executives get. So they're just simplifying the whole because along with every games, the IOC always has a meeting.
2: Yes. They're going to reduce invitations for the opening and closing ceremonies by 20%. Push back the opening dates of practice venues. Cut down on the cleaning service for the Athletes Village.
1: Now that's concerning, especially if what that actually means.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, were they going to get daily uh, like sheets changing or something like that or was it is it going to be i i wonder how thorough their the housekeeping services is and then there's been talk of making the production of the opening and closing ceremonies less flashy but it was noted that making cuts would not go over well with broadcasters and by broadcasters we pretty much mean
1: nbc because the opening ceremonies has gotten out of control for my taste oh okay I prefer the opening ceremonies, going back to the 90s, where you really got a sense of the country. Pyeongchang did a very good job of that, to Mm -hmm. be fair. Rio, it was too much. London, too much. Do you
2: want to go back to the days where everybody in their seats had, like, cards underneath and had participation?
1: Loved that. I want to hold up my little card to make you know the sea move mm-hmm. I think that's because fun. didn't they and, in pyeongchang they had that but like digitally
2: didn't they have it right.
1: yeah they had some like little flashing thing i would like to take it down a notch like one of the things we posted over the summer was this ridiculously adorable song from 1972 and they had all these german children in color-coded outfits with little flower rings, singing some incredibly old folk tune. I loved that. So we need to go back to those days. We do. I miss the charm. Everybody keeps wanting to be bigger, bigger, bigger. I'm missing the charm. Remember the little creatures that came out of the ground at Lillehammer? Oh, yeah. Charming. I need more charm. But but Beijing still has to do the drummers. Oh, yes, they do. Oh. Basically, they could just like stick 100 drummers there and I'd be like, OK, we're good. <laughs> That's all I need. A whole bunch of guys with drums yelling in rhythm. And
2: then finally, they're going they're talking about reducing the number of motor vehicles in the torch relay caravan because they talked about making the torch relay smaller. But the problem is it goes through all 47 prefectures. So if they shortened it, somebody gets stiffed. And you can't do that to a prefecture who has been waiting for this moment for years. It's a favorite child issue. Exactly. So.
1: But they probably, I mean, we've seen the torch relay. So you've got a a police escort Mm -hmm. and the bus that carries. Different torch relay. Yeah. So, how and then there other... was like a Coke truck and right, some other need, stuff. Yeah, yeah. You don't need all these hangers on. Yeah, entourages in general looks like are going to be reduced. And that could be. I think that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing.
2: Uh Other news from Tokyo. This is from NS Packaging. The podiums are going to be re- made of recycled plastic. They made their goal of collecting twenty four point five tons of plastic in nine months, and now we've got recycled podiums, which is awesome.
1: I cannot wait to see what they look like, because I bet they're going to be gorgeous. Oh, of course. They they're not going to go half measure. With no, no. They're going to really do them up so that look at our beautiful recycled podiums.
2: Exactly. That also fits in with the other recycled elements that are all all found throughout these games. So good on you, Tokyo, for doing that. And then on October 24th, The Tokyo Aquatics Center is going to have its grand opening ceremony.
1: Can anybody actually go? Uh, There, you can have, if
2: you live in Tokyo, they will have a facility tour in the afternoon on Saturday, the 24th. So, in the morning will be the ceremony, in the afternoon will be the tour, which is kind of cool. And those who wish to participate in the tour will need to apply in advance. So registration starts on Wednesday, October 7th, and it's first-come, 1st first serve basis. If you live in Kotoku, where the uh, facility is located, you will get priority. So that's very cool. You can go to 2020games.metro.tokyo.jp for information on how to apply, and that is in Japanese.
1: Roy Tomazawa, I'm looking at you. Right? Oh. Go and send us a report. Yes. All right. but We've got some news from the
2: IOC. The Olympic Channel has cut, uh, cut its communications and public relations staff as part of a restructuring measure, according to Inside the Games. And this is part of an IOC reorganization as they, quote, adapt to a changing landscape
1: means COVID is sucking up the cash.
2: Yeah, pro- probably. But they've created a digital engagement and marketing department, and that is now based at Olympic House in Lausanne. That is interesting news. And congratulations to T-Boc, is going to receive the Seoul Peace Prize. The uh, Seoul Peace Prize Cultural Foundation has awarded t bach the recipient of the prize for his outstanding contribution to world peace through sport.
1: That's going to mean so much to him.
2: Oh, right, because he worked of- really hard to to bring together North Korea and South Korea, done a lot to develop a
1: refugee team. If you're going to give t bach a prize, this was a good one.
2: Yes. So congratulations, Dr. Bach.
1: All right, well, that will wrap
2: it up for this episode. Tell us your favorite memories from Sydney 2000.
1: Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the flame alive podcast group on Facebook.
2: Next week, we'll be back with more stories from the Olympics and Paralympics as we go out to music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.
1: that.